Chapter thirty seven, part one of Run to Earth, a novel by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter thirty seven, part one. Oh, above measure false. Victor Carrington was very well content with the state of affairs at Hilton House in all but one respect. The fulfilment of his purpose was not approaching with sufficient rapidity. The rich marriage which he had talked about for Reginald was a pure figment. The virtuous ironmonger, with the richly dowered daughter, existed only in his prolific brain. The need of money was growing pressing. He had done much, but there was still much to do, and he must make haste to do it. He had also been mistaken on one point of much importance to his success. He had not calculated on the strength of Douglas Dale's constitution— each day that he dined with Paulina, and the days on which he did not were exceedingly few, Dale drank a small quantity of curacao, into which Carrington had poured poison of a slow but sure nature. As the small carafon in which the liquor was placed upon the table was emptied, the poisoner never found any difficulty in gaining access to the fresh supply. The antique liquor chest, with its fittings of Venetian glass, was always kept on the sideboard in the dining-room, and was never locked. Paulina had a habit of losing anything that came into her hands, and the key of the liquor-chest had long been missing. But the time was passing, and the poison was not telling, as far as he the poisoner could judge from appearances, on Douglas Dale. He never complained of illness, and beyond a slight lassitude he did not seem to have anything the matter with him. This would not do. It behooved Carrington to expedite matters. His project was to accomplish the death of Douglas Dale by poison, throwing the burden of suspicion, should suspicion arise, upon Paulina. To advance this purpose, he had industriously circulated reports of the most injurious character respecting her, so that Douglas Dale, if he had not been blinded and engrossed by his love, must have seen that he was regarded by the men whom he was in the habit of meeting even more coldly and curiously than when he had first boldly announced his engagement to Madame Dursky. He made it known that Douglas Dale had made a will by which the whole of his disposable property was bequeathed to Paulina, and circulated a rumour that the Austrian widow was utterly averse to the intended marriage in feeling and was only contracting it from interested motives. If Dale was only out of the way, and his heir had come into the money, she would rather have Reginald, was a spiteful saying current among those who knew the lady and her suitor, and which had its unsuspected origin with Carrington. Supposing Dale to come to his death by poison, and that fact to be ascertained, who would be suspected but the woman who had everything to gain by his death? whose acknowledged lover was his next heir, and who succeeded by his will to all the property which did not go immediately into the possession of that acknowledged lover. The plan was admirably laid, and there was no apparent hitch in it, and it only remained now for Carrington to accelerate his proceedings. He still maintained reserve with Reginald Eversleigh, who would go to his house and lounge purposely about, sullen and gloomy, but afraid to question the mastermind which had so completely subjugated his weak and craven nature. 
the engagement between paulina and douglas had lasted nearly two months when a cloud overshadowed the horizon which had seemed so bright madame jersky became somewhat alarmed by a change in her lover's appearance which struck her suddenly on one of his visits to the villa for some weeks past she had seen him only by lamplight that light which gives a delusive brightness to the countenance to-day she saw him with the cold northern sunlight shining full upon his face and for the first time she perceived that he had altered much of late douglas she said earnestly how ill you are looking indeed yes i see it to-day for the first time and i can only wonder that i never noticed it before you have grown so much paler so much thinner within the last few weeks i am sure you cannot be well my dearest paulina pray do not look at me with such alarm said douglas gently believe me there is nothing particular the matter i have not been quite myself for the last few weeks i admit a touch of low fever i think but there is not the slightest occasion for fear on your part oh douglas exclaimed paulina how can you speak so carelessly of a subject so vital to me i implore you to consult a physician immediately i assure you my dearest it is not necessary there is nothing really the matter douglas i beg and entreat you to see a physician directly i entreat it as a favour to me my dear paulina i am ready to do anything you wish you will promise me then to see a doctor you can trust without an hour's unnecessary delay i promise with all my heart replied douglas ah paulina what happiness to think that my life is of some slight value to her i love so fondly no more was said upon this subject but during dinner and throughout the evening paulina's eyes fixed themselves every now and then with an anxious scrutinizing gaze upon her lover's face when he had left her she mentioned her fears to her confidant and shadow miss brewer do you not see a change in mr dale she asked a change what kind of change do you not perceive an alteration in his appearance in plainer words do you not think him looking very ill miss brewer generally so impassive started and looked at her patroness with a gaze in which alarm was plainly visible she had hazarded so much in order to bring about a marriage between douglas and her patroness and what if mortality's dread enemy death should forbid the bands ill she exclaimed do you think mr dale is ill i do indeed and he confesses as much himself though he makes light of the matter he talks of low fever i cannot tell you how much he has alarmed me there may be nothing serious in it answered miss brewer with some hesitation one is so apt to take alarm about trifles which a doctor would laugh at i dare say mr dale only requires change of air a london life is not calculated to improve any one's health perhaps that is the cause of his altered appearance replied paulina only too glad to be reassured as to her lover's safety i will beg him to take change of air but he has promised to see a doctor to-morrow when he comes to me in the afternoon i shall hear what the doctor has said douglas dale was very much inclined to make light of the slight symptoms of ill health which had oppressed him for some time a languor a sense of thirst and fever which were very wearing in their effect 
but which he attributed to the alternations of excitement and agitation that he had undergone of late. He was, however, too much a man of honour to break the promise made to Paulina. He went early on the following morning to Saville Row, where he called upon Dr. Harley Westbrook, a physician of some eminence, to whom he carefully described the symptoms of which he had complained to Paulina. "'I do not consider myself really ill,' he said in conclusion, "'but I have come to you in obedience to the wish of a friend.' "'I am very glad that you have come to me,' answered Dr. Westbrook gravely. "'Indeed. Do you then consider the symptoms alarming?' "'Well, no, not at present.' but I may go so far as to say that you have done very wisely in placing yourself under medical treatment. It is a most interesting case, added the doctor, with an air of satisfaction that was almost enjoyment. He then asked his patient a great many questions, some of which Douglas Dale considered frivolous, or indeed absurd. Questions about his diet, his habits, questions even about the people with whom he associated, the servants who waited upon him. These latter inquiries might have seemed almost impertinent, if Dr. Westbrook's elevated position had not precluded such an idea. "'You dine at your club or in your chambers, eh, Mr. Dale?' he asked. "'Neither at my club nor my chambers. I dine every day with a friend.' "'Indeed. Always with the same friend?' "'Always the same.' "'And you breakfast?' "'At my chambers.' Here followed several questions as to the nature of the breakfast. "'These sorts of ailments depend so much on diet,' said the physician, as if to justify the closeness of his questioning. "'Your servant prepares your breakfast, of course. Is he a person whom you can trust?' "'Yes. He is an old servant of my father's. I could trust him implicitly in far more important matters than the preparation of my breakfast.' "'Indeed!' "'Will you pardon me if I ask rather a strange question?' "'Certainly, if it is a necessary one.' "'Answered like a lawyer, Mr. Dale,' replied Dr. Westbrook, with a smile. "'I want to know whether this old and trusted servant of yours "'has any beneficial interest in your death.' "'Interest in my death? "'In plainer words, has he reason to think that you have put him down in your will, "'supposing that you have made a will, which is far from probable?' "'Well, yes,' replied Douglas thoughtfully. "'I have made a will within the last few months, "'and Jarvis, my old servant, knows that he is provided for "'in the event of surviving me. "'Not a very likely event, according to the ordinary hazards, "'but a man is bound to prepare for every contingency. "'You told your servant that you had provided for him?' "'I did. "'He has been such an excellent creature "'that it was only natural I should leave him "'comfortably situated in the event of my death.' "'No, to be sure,' answered the physician "'with a rather absent manner. "'And now I need trouble you "'with no further questions this morning. "'Come to me in a few days, "'and in the meantime take the medicine I prescribe for you.' "'Dr. Westbrook wrote a prescription, "'and Mr. Dale departed, "'very much perplexed by his interview "'with the celebrated physician.' Douglas went to Fulham that evening, as usual, and the first question Paulina asked related to his interview with the doctor. "'You have seen a medical man?' she asked. "'I have, and you may set your mind at rest, dearest. He assures me that there is nothing serious the matter.' Paulina was entirely reassured, and throughout that evening she was brighter and happier than usual in the society of her lover. More lovely, more bewitching than ever, 
as it seemed to Douglas. He waited a week before calling again on the physician, and he might perhaps have delayed his visit even longer, had he not felt that the fever and languor from which he suffered increased rather than abated. This time Dr. Westbrook's manner seemed graver and more perplexed than on the former visit. He asked even more questions, and at last, after a thoughtful examination of the patient, he said very seriously, "'Mr. Dale, I must tell you frankly that I do not like your symptoms. You consider them alarming?' I consider them perplexing rather than alarming, and as you are not a nervous subject, I think I may venture to trust you fully. You may trust in the strength of my nerve, if that is what you mean. I believe I may, and I shall have to test your moral courage and general force of character. Pray, be brief, then, said Douglas with a faint smile. I can almost guess what you have to say. You are going to tell me that I carry the seeds of a mortal disease, that the shadowy hand of death already holds me in its fatal grip. "'I am going to tell you nothing of the kind,' answered Dr. Westbrook. "'I can find no symptoms of disease. You have a very fair lease of life, Mr. Dale, and may enjoy a green old age, if other people would allow you to enjoy it. How do you mean?' "'I mean that if I can trust my own judgment in a manner which is sometimes almost beyond the reach of science, the symptoms from which you suffer are those of slow poisoning.' "'Slow poisoning?' replied Douglas, in almost inaudible accents. "'It is impossible,' he exclaimed after a pause, during which the physician waited quietly, until his patient should have in some manner recovered his calmness of mind. "'It is quite impossible. I have every confidence in your skill, your science. But in this instance, Dr. Westbrook, I feel assured that you are mistaken.' "'I would gladly think so, Mr. Dale,' replied the doctor gravely, "'but I cannot.' I have given my best thought to your case. I can only form one conclusion, namely, that you are laboring under the effects of poison. Do you know what that poison is? I do not, but I do know that it must have been administered with a caution that is almost diabolical in its ingenuity, so slowly, by such imperceptible degrees, that you have scarcely been aware of the change which it has worked in your system." It was a most providential circumstance that you came to me when you did, as I have been able to discover the treachery to which you are subject, while there is still ample time for you to act against it. Forewarned is forearmed, you know, Mr. Dale. The hidden hand of the secret poisoner is about its fatal work. It is for you and me to discover to whom the hand belongs. Is there any one about you whom you can suspect of such hideous guilt? No one, no one. I repeat that such a thing is impossible. Who is the person most interested in your death? asked Dr. Westbrook calmly. My first cousin, Sir Reginald Eversleigh, who would succeed to a very handsome income in that event. But I have not met him, or at any rate broke bread with him, for the last two months, nor can I for a moment believe him capable of such infamy. If you have not been in intimate association with him for the last two months, you may absolve him from all suspicion, answered Dr. Westbrook. You spoke to me the other day of dining very frequently with one particular friend. Forgive me if I ask an unpleasant question. Is that friend a person whom you can trust? That friend I could trust with a hundred lives, if I had them to lose, Douglas replied warmly. The doctor looked at his patient thoughtfully. He was a man of the world, and the warmth of Mr. Dale's manner told him that the friend in question was a woman, 
"'Has the person whom you trust so implicitly any beneficial interest in your death?' he asked. "'To some amount, but that person would gain much more by my continuing to live.' "'Indeed. Then we must needs fall back upon my original idea, and painful as it may be to you, the old servant must become the object of your suspicion.' "'I cannot believe him capable.' "'Come, come, Mr. Dale,' interrupted the physician. "'We must look at things as men of the world. "'It is your duty to ascertain by whom this poison has been administered "'in order to protect yourself from the attacks of your insidious destroyer. "'If you will follow my advice, you will do this. "'If, on the other hand, you elect to shut your eyes to the danger that assails you, "'I can only tell you that you will most assuredly pay for your folly "'by the forfeit of your life.' "'What am I to do?' asked Douglas. "'You say that your habits of life are almost rigid in their regularity. "'You always breakfast in your own chambers. "'You always dine and take your after-dinner coffee in the house of one particular friend. "'With the exception of a biscuit and a glass of sherry, taken sometimes at your club, "'these two meals are all you take during the day. "'It is, therefore, an indisputable fact that poison has been administered at one or other of these two meals.' Your old butler serves one, the servants of your friend prepare the other. Either in your own chambers, or in your friend's house, you have a hidden foe. It is for you to find out where that foe lurks. Not in her house, gasped Douglas, unconsciously betraying the depth of his feeling and the sex of his friend. Not in hers. It must be Jarvis whom I have to fear. And yet, no, I cannot believe it. My father's old servant— a man who used to carry me in his arms when I was a boy. "'You may easily set the question of his guilt or innocence at rest, Mr. Dale,' answered Dr. Westbrook. "'Contrive to separate yourself from him for a time. "'If, during that time, you find your symptoms cease, "'you will have the strongest evidence of his guilt. "'If they still continue, you must look elsewhere.' "'I will take your advice,' replied Douglas, with a weary sigh. "'Anything is better than suspense.' little more was said as douglas walked slowly from the physician's house to the phoenix club he meditated profoundly on the subject of his interview with dr westbrook who is the traitor he asked himself who unhappily there can be no doubt about it jarvis is the guilty wretch it was with unspeakable pain that douglas dale contemplated the idea of his old servant's guilt his old servant who had seemed a model of fidelity and devotion this very man had attended the deathbed of the rector, Douglas Dale's father, had been recommended by that father to the care of his two sons, had exhibited every appearance of intense grief at the loss of his master. What could he think, except that Jarvis was guilty? There was but one other direction in which he could look for guilt, and there surely it could not be found. Who in Hilton House had any interest in his death, except that one person, who was above the possibility of suspicion. He sat by his solitary breakfast-table on the morning after his interview with the physician, and watched Jarvis as he moved to and fro, waiting on his master with what seemed affectionate attention. Douglas ate little. A failing appetite had been one of the symptoms that accompanied the low fever from which he had lately suffered. This morning, depression of spirits rendered him still less inclined to eat. He was thinking of Jarvis and of the past, those careless, happy, childish days in which this man had been second only to his own kindred in his boyish affection. 
while he meditated gravely upon this most painful subject deliberating as to the manner in which he should commence a conversation that was likely to be a very serious one he happened to look up and perceived that he was watched by the man he had been lately watching his eyes met the gaze of his old servant and he beheld a strange earnestness in that gaze the old man did not flinch on meeting his master's glance i beg your pardon for looking at you so hard mr douglas he said but i was thinking about you very serious sir when you looked up indeed jarvis and why why you see sir it was about your appetite as i was thinking it's fallen off dreadful within the last few weeks the poor breakfasts as you eats is enough to break a man's heart and you don't know the pains as i take sir to tempt you in the way of breakfasts that fish sir i fetched from groves this morning with my own hands they comes up in a salt-water tank in the bottom of their own boat sir as lively as if they was still in their natural element groves fish do but they might be red herrings for any notices you take of em you're not yourself mr douglas that's what it is you're ill mr douglas and you ought to see a doctor excuse my presumption sir in making these remarks but if an old family servant that has nursed you on his knees can't speak free who can true douglas answered with a sigh i was a very small boy when you carried me on your shoulders to many a country fair and you were very good to me jarvis only my duty sir muttered the old man you are right jarvis as to my health i am ill then you'll send for a doctor surely mr douglas i have already seen a doctor and what do we say sir he says my case is very serious oh mr douglas don't he say that don't he say that cried the old man in extreme distress i can only tell you the truth jarvis answered douglas but there is no occasion for despair the physician tells me that my case is a grave one but he does not say that it is hopeless why don't he consult another doctor mr douglas said jarvis perhaps that one ain't up to his work if it's such a difficult case you ought to go all the best doctors in london till you find the one that can cure you a fine well-grown young gentleman like you oughtn't to have much the matter with him i don't see as it can be very serious i don't know about that jarvis but in any case i have resolved upon doing something for you for me sir lord bless your generous heart i don't want nothing in this mortal world but you may jarvis replied douglas you have already been told that i have provided for you in case of my death yes sir you were so good as to say you had left me an annuity and it was very kind of you to think of such a thing and i'm duly thankful but still you see sir i can't help looking at it in the light of a kind of joke sir for it ain't in human nature that an old chap like me is going to outlive a young gentleman like you and lord forbid that it should be in human nature for such a thing to happen we never know what may happen jarvis at any rate i have provided against the worst but as you are getting old and have worked hard all of your life i think you must want rest so instead of putting you off till my death i shall give you your annuity at once and you may retire into a comfortable little house of your own and live the life of an elderly gentleman with a decent little income as soon as you please to the surprise of douglas dale the old man's countenance expressed only grief and mortification on hearing an announcement which his master had supposed would have been delightful to him 
begging your pardon sir he faltered but have you seen a younger servant as you like better and as could serve you better than poor old jarvis no indeed answered douglas i have seen no such person nor do i believe that any one in the world could serve me as well as you then why do you want to change sir i don't want to change i only want to make you happy jarvis then make me happy by letting me stay with you pleaded the old servant let me stay sir don't talk about annuities i want nothing from you but the pleasure of waiting on my dear old master's son it's as much delight to me to wait upon you now as it was to me twenty years ago to carry you to the country fairs on my shoulder ah we did have rare times of it then didn't we sir let me stay and when i die give me a grave somewhere hard by where you live and if once in a way when you pass the churchyard where i lay you should give a sigh and say poor old jarvis that will be a full reward to me for having loved you so dear ever since you was a baby was this acting was this the perfect simulation of an accomplished hypocrite no 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 douglas dale could not believe it the tears came into his eyes he extended his hand and grasped that of his old servant you shall stay with me jarvis he said and I will trust you with all my heart. Douglas Dale left his chambers soon after that conversation, and went straight to Dr. Westbrook, to whom he gave a full account of the interview. I have tested the old man thoroughly, he said in conclusion, and I believe him to be fidelity itself. You have tested him, Dr. Dale. Stuff and nonsense, exclaimed the practical physician. You surely don't call that sentimental conversation a test. If the man is capable of being a slow poisoner, he is, of course, capable of acting a part, and shedding crocodile's tears in evidence of his devoted affection for the master whose biliary organs he is deranging by the administration of antimony or aconite. If you want to test the man thoroughly, test him in my way. Contrive to eat your breakfast elsewhere for a week or two. Touch nothing, not so much as a glass of water in your own chambers. And if, at the end of that time, the symptoms have ceased— you will know what to think of that pattern of fidelity, Mr. Jarvis. Douglas promised to take the doctor's advice. He was convinced of his servant's innocence, but he wanted to put that question beyond doubt. But if Jarvis was indeed innocent, where was the guilty wretch to be found? End of chapter 37, part 1